Welcome to Relationship University. My name is Natalie Bloom, therapist and counselor specializing in young professionals. Each episode, you'll hear uncommon conversations with real people and take away psychological insights and tools to strengthen your relationship to dating, friendships, partners, and work. But most importantly, improving the relationship you have to yourself. Thanks so much for joining me and let's get it started. I really hope you love listening and learning from the podcast. And the podcast is not meant to be actual therapy or a substitute for a relationship with a mental health provider. Today's podcast episode will discuss anxiety and panic attacks, what they are and how to overcome it. This will be helpful if you experience anxiety or panic, or if you want to learn to support someone who does. And our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth McMahon, PhD, who specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT, for panic and other anxiety disorders for over 35 years. Her publications include The Client Workbook, Overcoming Anxiety and Panic Interactive Guide, which was published in 2019, and the Therapist Manual Virtual Reality Therapy for Anxiety, a guide for therapists, which just came out in 2022. Dr. Elizabeth has given numerous continuing education presentations on integrative CBT for panic and anxiety, treating phobias, using virtual reality, VR, in therapy, and other topics. She has taught continuing education workshops at national conferences, including for the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, the American Psychological Association, and for PESI. Her website, or sorry, her webinar on treating needle phobia using VR for exposure and a video of a simulation VR exposure therapy session are available free for therapists on the Society for Virtual Reality Therapy on the website www.svrt.org. And I met Dr. Elizabeth when I was a therapist in training, and since then I've referred many clients to her, and her skills and approach has truly changed people's lives. And I'm so excited for our conversation today because anxiety and panic touches everyone's life, be it personally or for those around us. So welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I thought we could start with discussing a little bit of background information about anxiety and panic. And so to start with, I'm wondering, how did you start specializing in anxiety? And why did you write Overcoming Anxiety and Panic Interactive Guide? I started specializing in anxiety when I was reading the research studies and they kept showing that cognitive behavioral therapy designed specifically for anxiety can be very effective and even more exciting. Treatment for fears and panic attacks, those are often treated successfully in a relatively short period of time and without usually needing any medication. Mm. It's incredibly rewarding to treat anxiety because I see people's lives change. Clients actually often say to me, you know, in retrospect, the panic attack was the best thing that ever happened to me because it got me mm. into therapy. 
and the skills I've learned are helpful in every area of my life. So I wrote Overcoming Anxiety and Panic Interactive Guide because I want everybody to have this information about how to overcome anxiety attacks and, and cope with panic. Uh, when you read the book, the science about anxiety and panic in the brain is explained in ways that are easy to understand, that are useful, and that makes sense. People need actionable information, and that's what I try to provide. Wow. You know, it's such a such a relief, Dr. Elizabeth, to know that there are ways that people can get relief from anxiety or panic attacks because it's such a terrible experience to experience anxiety or a panic attack. So it's so relieving. So cannot wait to hear more about it. But just kind of in a general sense, I'd love to know, um, how do you define anxiety? What What is anxiety? I say anxiety is a response to perceived danger. Now, the danger can be real or it can be imagined. It can be physical or financial or interpersonal. And the anxiety response can range in intensity anywhere from feeling a little stressed or somewhat worried to being so worried you can't get your mind off it up to being panic-stricken and terrorized. So it shows up in the body with a lot of physical signs. Your muscles might tense up. You might get stomach upset or queasiness. The chest can feel tight and you can feel short of breath. Your jaw can, can tighten up or your shoulders can get tight and tense. You can get kind of trembly, just all kinds of physical symptoms. There are emotional signs of anxiety ranging anywhere from mild uneasiness to feeling on guard, to feeling kind of, you know, worried, anxious, jittery, to feeling, again, panicked, terror-stricken. And then there are what are called cognitive signs. In other words, your thoughts. And anxious thoughts, again, show up, you know, on a, on a spectrum. They can range from just, you know, uncomfortable but mild worry about just one particular situation, or then go all the way to deeply held beliefs that other people are untrustworthy and the world's full of dangers at all times and that you're helpless and weak and vulnerable, which can make life really an anxiety-provoking proposition. Mm -hmm. So the question I think to ask yourself is what impact is anxiety having on my life or on my relationships or my view of myself? If it's disrupting or restricting your activities, if it's interfering with your relationships and your functioning or if making you feel bad about yourself, those are signs that it's a problem that's worth addressing because problematic anxiety rarely gets better on its own. Mm. Yeah, you're, you're sharing with us a lot of different, there's so many different ways that it, it presents. So how come anxiety doesn't go away on its own? Well, it doesn't go away on its own, first of all, because there may be things in your life that are triggering the anxiety and you need to address those. But if you haven't addressed those, 
um, anxiety will tend to continue. And secondly, it's because the instinctive natural responses to anxiety or fear, unfortunately, create a vicious cycle, making mm. fear more likely to continue in the future. Mm. Yeah, so it needs to be addressed because if not, it will just kind of come back in a cycle. Right. And it can even spread. Uh, people sometimes say, well, uh, I started out being afraid of being in a car after the car accident. So I started avoiding being in cars. And then I found that I started avoiding being in, in not only avoiding driving, but avoiding being in Ubers or Lyfts. And then it's, I started being anxious being on buses and on BART and on planes. And now I'm getting anxious being in rooms. You know, anxiety can can spread because the part of the brain that triggers anxiety is a primitive part of our brain. So it's not thoughtful. And its job is to find danger and remember it and respond to it. So once it decides that you're in some kind of danger, it remembers and then it can start to react uh, more and more frequently, even if you don't need it. And, and all kinds of things. There, there are five things in the absence of actual danger uh, that can make you anxious when you don't need to, that can sort of activate this threat response system, right? Mm. And the, the five common triggers are, first of all, a genetic vulnerability. Anxiety may run in your family. You may have a nervous system that's just very highly responsive. It's like you got the Porsche nervous system. You didn't get the the Mack truck. <laughs> and then there are certain chemicals and biochemicals that can make anxiety and panic more likely. Alcohol, interestingly enough, uh, relaxes you. But in the day or two after you drink, anxiety is more likely. Uh, caffeine can make you jittery and more likely. Female hormone changes can increase anxiety. Um, so there are the chemical factors, but the big three are external stress, right? Mm. Stressful job, caregiving, parenting, juggling multiple responsibilities, which so many of us do these days. Mm -hmm. And stress is really affected by how we talk to ourselves. You know, the things you say to yourself either protect you and buffer you from stress, like, it'll be okay, it's hard, but you can get through it, we've been through tough times before, or they make it worse. And so much of the time we can be critical of ourselves and harsh on ourselves and expect things that are really impossible. Don't let mm. anybody down, don't have anybody upset. We can use words like, awful, horrible, can't stand it. What's wrong with me? Well, mm. that's going to make you more anxious when you're stressed. And finally, we learn from what's happened to us in the past. And not only what's happened to us, but what we've seen or heard happen to other people. We can even develop fears from watching movies. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Of how the five triggers can interact. Okay. Uh, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about Maya, but every name I use is, I've changed the names 
and I'm giving you examples that are true to life, but that are not of any one particular client I've worked with so as mm-hmm. to protect my client's privacy. Great. But we'll call her Maya. Okay. Well, anxiety ran in the family. Her mom was too afraid to drive. Her uncle had panic attacks and he refused to leave the house. So not only did it run in the family, but she had examples of seeing that the response to being anxious was to avoid. She'd had a baby three months previous and was still trying to juggle a very demanding job with a very unsupportive boss and told me that she was a people pleaser. She Mm. wanted to make everybody happy. And her first panic attack hit when she was flying back from a business conference. She'd stayed up late working and then drinking and the plane hit some turbulence and that was it. She panicked. Her heart was racing. She thought she couldn't breathe. She thought she was dying. And ever since then, she came to see me because she'd been afraid to fly and she started being afraid of having another panic attack and started worrying about getting far from home or not knowing where a hospital was. You can see how anxiety, how all those different triggers interacted, the experiences, the self-demands, the stress, the chemicals uh, being, being postpartum and the genetics. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different pieces that can contribute to people's experience of anxiety and panic, it sounds like. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So you described a panic attack in your example with Maya. Um, would you mind describing what a panic attack is? And is it the same thing as an anxiety attack or different? How, how do people know if they had one or um, what that is? I see the terms anxiety attack and panic attack as completely synonymous. They're just two ways of, of saying the same thing. And a panic attack is when your threat response system, generally known as your fight or flight response, gets activated abruptly. And usually you have no idea why. If mm. you know why and you get a panic attack, that's called a phobia. But Mm. it's still a panic attack. You just know why. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, your heart's racing, your muscles intense, you feel scared. And a lot of times it seemed to come out of the blue. Mm. So there are a lot of physical signs. You, You get at least four physical signs, which can be anything from your heart racing and and pounding or feeling sweaty or trembly or shaky, uh, a feeling of choking or your chest being tight or having chest discomfort or pain, feeling short of breath like you can't get enough air, uh, stomach upset or nausea or queasiness or GI symptoms, feeling dizzy or lightheaded or kind of unsteady or faint, feeling hot or feeling cold, tingling or numbness. So a panic attack, to be formally called a panic attack, you have to have at least four of those signs. Mm. And some of them can also be a response to the physical signs, like a sense that things aren't quite real or like somehow you're not fully present. And you start to, that can easily lead to a fear that you're losing control or, or going crazy or that you're dying and something's medically wrong. 
Mm. So a panic attack is fast onset of these signs, usually with these fears. And it's mm -hmm. called panic disorder when you start to worry about, are you going to have another one? Or you start to restrict your activities as a result. Mm -hmm. Got it. So a panic attack comes out of the blue. Um, these, these physical symptoms come out of nowhere. And um, the for someone to qualify as having panic disorder, they need to be worried and concerned about having another one. And also panic attack and anxiety attack are synonymous. So that can be interchangeable. And if someone knows why they have the panic attack, that can be under the category of a phobia, a specific phobia. Someone's has a phobia towards something, let's say spiders, and they and that elicits a panic attack, then that would be a, a panic attack related to a phobia? Exactly. When something reliably triggers panic in you so you can predict that you'll be scared, that's what we call a phobia. And it could be a fear of public speaking, a fear of spiders or dogs or flying or driving or heights or enclosed spaces. Um, almost anything. Yeah. So how does someone know? Um, so if, if panic attacks come out of the blue, how does someone know when they should be really concerned, like something's wrong, someone's getting a heart attack, uh, or there's some sort of, or a stroke, or there's some sort of um, just pu more purely physical um, uh, thing that's happening versus a panic attack? How do people decipher between the two and what, what should people do to take care of themselves around it? Well, anytime you have something happening in your body that you're concerned about, absolutely get yourself checked out. Uh, that makes sense. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a physician. I'm not going to be able to, to evaluate that. But so often people have a panic attack. It's very physical, as we've talked about. It's scary. And naturally, your first thought, if you can't see an, an outside reason to be scared, your natural thought is to, to think, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? Because your brain's basically screaming danger at you. Mm -hmm. And if you can't see an, an outside danger that seems dangerous, you can turn into your body and decide that what's happening in your body is scary, that you're having a heart attack or a stroke or going to pass out or going to die or your brain's going to explode or, you know, something horrible, something, something scary. So yes, get checked out physically. That's a good thing, first thing to do. A lot of people, when they have panic attacks, they go to the emergency room. Mm. And sometimes what happens in the emergency room, which is absolutely understandable, is... They check you out. They see that you're not having a heart attack or a stroke or anything medically wrong. And they say to you, everything's fine. But the trouble is, then you leave thinking, well, if everything's fine, why did I just have all that stuff happen in my body? Mm -hmm. Right? So it's very helpful if they can say in the emergency room, everything's medically fine. You had a misfiring of your fight or flight response, that's called a panic attack. And there's really good information about what's going on and there's really good treatment so you don't have to be frightened of it. And then 
hopefully they recommend my book. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there's a kind of a good news and bad news uh, scenario if let's say someone goes to the emergency room. So the good news is that there's not a heart attack or stroke or something if it is truly a panic attack and everything's okay physically. Um, the bad news is for some people that don't know about resources for panic attacks, they might feel at a loss of, well, what now? How do I get treatment? Exactly. Or even worse, they feel like, my God, they didn't find the problem and now I can't even trust the doctors and they get more scared and more anxious. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's so understandable. What, what would you say the connection between anxiety or just kind of generalized anxiety that people experience day to day and panic attacks? I think the difference between just the anxiety that we can experience day to day, am I going to be late for the meeting? Am I going to meet the deadline? Uh, you know, is my pregnancy going to go well? The, the things that we naturally tend to worry about is that it's a mild or tolerable level of anxiety and worry. And we we generally sort of have it in perspective. Yeah, you know, right? Like, all right, I want to try and be on time to the meeting. Uh, maybe I want to leave a little early. But if there's, you know, if BART gets delayed, if there's an accident on the freeway, it won't be the end of the world. We'll be able to take care of it. I think that's sort of normal stress. You you worry about stuff that's that's realistic. In fact, I sometimes think of, I, I sometimes talk about what's called adaptive anxiety. And, and there are three A's to adaptive anxiety, right? Adaptive anxiety is actually doing its job by, first of all, it's sending you accurate warnings about a potential threat. Mm -hmm. If you're not, if you haven't studied for the exam, you should be having some anxiety, right? So, mm -hmm. so it's accurate. It's in line with reality. And second, it leads you, it motivates you to take appropriate action. Maybe you pull out an all-nighter and you study. I've certainly done that. That's no and fun. And having alerted you to, accurately alerted you to a real-life problem, and motivated you to take appropriate action to solve the problem, it then goes away. It doesn't keep over and over and over, over in your mind. It's not, it's, it, it doesn't what if forever. It doesn't make you unnecessarily scared. Mm -hmm. Right. Anxiety problems make you more scared than you need to be. And they often make you worry or panic about things that are either not dangerous at all or not nearly as likely or dangerous as you think. And boy, there are just a lot of really common anxiety-provoking situations or, or triggers for people. You know, like public speaking. Mm-hmm. Public speaking is a big one. J Jerry Seinfeld famously quipped 
that most people are so scared of public speaking that at a funeral, they'd rather be in the box than giving the eulogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I see a lot of people for fear of flying, fear of driving, you know, fear of being trapped, you know, in small spaces, fear of heights, mm -hmm. and, and just fear of panic, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's there's different versions of anxiety. There's the adaptive anxiety. That's the anxiety that most people will have that can help to to motivate them to um, I don't know come on time or come early for an interview or study for that test or um, I don't know do the thing that needs to be done. And then yes. there's kind of more of a general anxiety that's um, that's interfering with someone's life that's a disproportionate amount of concern and anxiety symptoms for what's appropriate or what not appropriate, it's kind of stigmatizing. Maybe what's, um, you know, what's helpful maybe would be another way of saying that. And then the mm -hmm. other category would be panic attacks. So, mm -hmm. so I'm wondering, so do people that experience panic attacks more often have, uh, are more, are they more likely to have generalized anxiety disorder or other anxiety disorders, or can that be separate and not related? It can be separate and not related. Although again, if you have a tendency to anxiety, right, it's often common that you have more than one anxiety disorder. Uh, but generalized anxiety disorder is sometimes called the what if disease. It's like, mm. what if this happens? What if that happens? It's constantly imagining things that might happen, even if they're not likely. And it underestimates. So it overestimates how likely bad things are to happen and underestimates your ability to cope. And is constantly sort of playing this, this horror movie in your head about things that might go wrong. Um, panic mm -hmm. disorder is where you're frightened of panic. Phobia is where you're frightened and you panic about other things. Um, and then there's some other anxiety disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder or post-traumatic disorder, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder like PTSD. But they all have the common factor of the fear response, the response to threat is misfiring and going off either more intensely or more often than it really needs to, than is really justified. And because that's so unpleasant and so scary, we can inadvertently, instinctively respond in ways that make it worse over time, that actually maintain the cycle over time by escaping or avoiding or staying on the alert for threatened danger or taking safety actions that don't really keep us safe because we were never in danger to begin with um, or, or trying to not be anxious, like white knuckling through and fighting the anxiety. Stop, stop, relax, relax. Don't think it, don't think that, which doesn't work. None of those work because they're all fight or flight actions. They're all motivated by fear. And the part of the brain that is triggering this response to begin with is sensitive to messages of fear and threat. So when it sees that you're scared, when it sees that you're acting like a threat, it decides that there must be a threat and becomes even more likely 
to mm. misfire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Dr. Elizabeth, you're you're sharing with us some things to not do or things that are unhelpful um, or can kind of perpetuate some of these symptoms to start with, because I know we're, we're going to transition soon to hear about more of the treatments, the things that are helpful. But is that what I'm hearing? The things it's not helpful to validate, to believe, or to kind of buy into that there is something wrong when there when there isn't? Yes. Yes. Okay. So how, how can you notice um, early stages of a panic attack? And, and what should someone do in that in that situation? Well, the early signs of panic vary from person to person. So I would say reflect on your own personal experiences of panic. Like what happens first in your body? Uh, you know, Joe, for him, it was sweating. But for Janine, it was feeling shaky and like she couldn't breathe. And for somebody else, it could be a sense of not being quite present. Um, so pay attention to, to what happens first. Think about this afterwards when you're, when you're not panicking. What happened first in your body? Uh, what were the thoughts that came to your mind? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, so that's, and then mm-hmm. in terms of what you should do, it's a several-step process. Get the facts about what's happening in your body. So that may be go see your doctor. It may be go to the emergency room. I mean, it's really important to know if you're having a heart attack or a panic attack because you do really different things. Uh-huh. Right? Yes. Uh, are you really going to be paralyzed or go out of control or do something crazy? Or, or you know, does panic really cause this? And it really doesn't. You know, so you need to know. Are you in danger either from your body's reaction, the panic itself, or from the scary thoughts or from the situation? And once you've gotten the information that you're physically safe, then when you notice those early signs of panic, remind yourself that panic is actually the unthinking, automatic, hardwired response to perceived threat that can misfire. But it's really trying to prepare you to find and respond to danger and getting you ready to either fight or run. In other Mm -hmm. words, it's trying to be life-saving and protective. And Mother Nature wouldn't create a response to danger that's intended to save your life, that kills you. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? And if this is the same physical response that helps you leap out of the way of a car that just ran a red light, right? If, If all of a sudden you, you know, some car runs the red light and you leap out of the way and you're standing by the side of the road, like you're shaking, you're trembling, your heart's pounding, a mile a minute, your breathing is fast, you know, and you're like, you don't think, oh my God, I'm going crazy. You say, oh my God, did you see that guy? He almost killed me. Mm-hmm. But when you don't understand why it's happening, 
you can get frightened of that response, even though it's the same response that saved your life. So remind yourself about that. You want to consciously shift your breathing. And I know we're going to talk later about how breathing can help. Mm -hmm. Turn your attention to what's actually happening around you. Not what your fear is screaming at you. Mm -hmm. That's happening. Mm -hmm. And accept the unpleasant reality that right now your primitive bodyguard, caveman protector brain has overreacted. And it may take a little while for the adrenaline to get broken down and used up in your body. So it doesn't feel good. It's a miserable, stinking, unpleasant experience. But you don't have to fight it because it's not going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first, so thank you for that summary, Dr. Elizabeth. So it sounds like the first, the first thing to do, just maybe in general, if you have experienced a panic attack, um, could be to get yourself checked out, to have a bit of a differential diagnosis, just to make sure there's not something actually wrong, like a heart attack, for example, to get to Absolutely. Just, yeah. So just to kind of see, okay, is there something actually wrong that needs to be addressed medically? And if you go to your provider and everything's okay, then what can be helpful is to think back to notice the early signs and symptoms from a previous panic attack and to get that in order to note to, note to self, okay, um, this is what generally happens when I first start um, to get panicked, whether that's sweating or shortness of breath or feeling crazy or whatever it is, these symptoms that people sometimes experience and to kind of let oneself know, okay, here we go. This is my, bo my, my body's misfiring. I'm on alert, but there's not some, I, I could look around right now. I'm just uh, at work or in my apartment or whatever it might be. Um, everything is okay. And to not try to fight it um, because there's no reason to fight it because there's not actually something that's going to hurt you. That's a great summary. Absolutely. Those are, those are take-home points. Yeah. And you know, you're not alone. If you have panic attacks, it's not because you're weak or crazy or, or unusual. Panic attacks are so common that one survey of the general population found that one in every three people had had one in the previous year. And they can happen at any age, any age. Um, you know, children often develop fears or phobias uh, between the ages of four and six. And sometimes those fears continue on into adolescence and adulthood. Um, and if we think about how alcohol and drugs can make anxiety more likely, well, you know, how many of us in our in our teen years and young adult years maybe used substances or drank too much? Mm -hmm. um, right? If you're a woman, the fluctuations in your female hormones will occur throughout your childbearing years. And then the changes in menopause, any of those can make anxiety more likely. And when you're stressed, maybe you have less, you're not sleeping as well. You got more demands, more responsibility. Um, that can make anxiety more likely. Mm -hmm. So 
it's really, really common. Yeah. Yeah. That's really normalizing. And I think, yeah, what's, what's, what can be so hard is that panic can be such a different experience than general anxiety um, that it could be really shocking to people. I know I've had a couple um, panic attacks throughout my life. Um, I think maybe once when I was like 10, maybe just like a few times, just throughout just different stages. And it's such a shock. Um, it's just such a different experience. Um, it so can I be so abrupt and so sudden and so intense and so physical that uh, people really feel blindsided. Absolutely. It's not the everyday, um, it's not an everyday, uh, to me it wasn't at least in my experience. And from what I've heard from other clients, it's not like an everyday normal experience. It's something that's so physical. So it's very, it can be very surprising. Yeah. Um, so if we kind of like shift to our um, kind of talking about treatment, I'm wondering just in general, um, what helps with, with anxiety for treat in terms of treatments? Okay. Well, if you're having panic symptoms, it can really help to follow the step-by-step the -step program that I lay out in my book. And you can do that on your own or with a friend or a family member or with a therapist um, because that'll help you identify your anxiety triggers, your panic triggers, so you can work to reduce them. And it will explain what's the intended helpful purpose of every single of those physical sensations that seem to come out of the blue and so be so intense and scary. So you understand what they're, how they're trying to help and why they're not dangerous. And it can help you sort out what are you afraid of, but what are the facts? And it actually has physical exercises to help you lose your fear of what happens in the body when you panic. Um, this approach, this information, and these tools, these steps have helped thousands of people worldwide. And they're good for panic attacks that either come out of the blue or that are in response to some stress stressor or some trigger. Now, if you're just feeling stressed, you know, sort of stressed, tense, anxious, um, you might be interested in checking out a, a new tool that's become available, a new app called Mindco, M-I-N-D-C-O, Mindco Relief app. It teaches a whole series of anti-stress tools, and mm. it includes uh, virtual reality experiences. I'm actually the one who wrote and recorded those. Wow. Uh, audio recordings and some coaching sessions. And you learn skills and set goals and track your progress. And when you download the app, they actually mail you uh, a VR headset to use with the program that you get to keep even when you uh, stop the program. Wow. And then there are other things you can do to manage stress, you know, physical activity or activities like yoga, prayer if you have a religious faith, meditation, um, talking and writing about stresses. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot out there. So one, the first, or one of the first steps could be around, especially around panic would to be to, um, to get your book, to follow these steps that help to identify the triggers of panic. And then you go through different steps in order to understand those triggers a little bit better. 
Is that right for the for kind of the first the first order of business that you'd recommend for people that want to get better um, or want to kind of address their panic? Right. Get a sense of what's triggering it. Uh, because a lot of times uh, people are not, it's like, why am I having this? If you can understand what, what made you vulnerable to it, what triggers it, it makes more sense. And then you've got to, you want to get information about what's actually happening, what's happening in the body, what's happening in your mind. And, and you want to understand why the natural instinctive responses are actually the last thing that you want to do and what you want to do instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so educating yourself a little bit more about what's actually happening can be really helpful. Um, and maybe what's confusing about the panic um, attack experience is that it's not what what's intuitive might not be what's helpful. Beautifully put. Yes. Got it. And and what about breathing exercises? Um, how helpful are they? And and which ones do you think are best for anxiety? You know, there are a lot of different types of breathing exercises that can help. Um, for me, I think what you want to remember is you want to breathe low. That means with your diaphragm or your belly expanding, not high up in the chest. Because if you take a big chest breath, you can feel everything gets very tense. So you want to breathe in with the diaphragm, with the belly, and mm -hmm. kind of rhythmically and slow with a longer exhale, a longer breath out. And there are lots of different ways to do that. I kind of like what I call four by four belly breathing. Um, you put a hand on your chest and put a, you put a hand on your stomach with like a, a finger on your belly button. And mm. when you breathe in, let the breath push your lower hand out, your hand on your belly, and your hand on your chest shouldn't be moving at all. And then as you breathe out, feel the hand on your belly move in. And to make it rhythmic and slow down, just count silently from one to four as you breathe in. And even longer, one to four as you breathe out. And this activates the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system, the opposite branch from the fight or flight sympathetic, save your life branch of the nervous system. You can sort of feel your body calming down. It lowers your blood pressure, lowers your heart rate. It's just good to do, period. Is there is there a best time to do this? Should someone do this in the morning, at night, um, when they feel panic coming on, or they shouldn't do it when they feel panic coming on? Like, what, what would you say is a good approach to breathing exercises or practicing these breathing exercises? Well, I recommend start practicing it four times a day. It helps with digestion. So take at least a minute to practice it before each meal. And then right before you go to bed, because it helps you make that transition to relax and calm down and helps you go more quickly into a deep, restful state of sleep. And the more you practice it, the more quickly your body learns to shift into this breathing, which means that after you've learned how to do it easily, you can start to do it whenever you notice a little tension in your body. 
And then you can start to do it before you're about to go into a situation that you know tends to be anxiety provoking. And then you can start to do it even in the midst of a panic attack. Mm. Okay. So probably best to have a practice of this. Um, this is not like the first line of defense when you have a panic attack. It's something to do if you already have a practice. It's sort of like learning to swim, right? You don't want to be thrown into the ocean in the middle of a storm and have somebody say, oh, and by the way, learn how to swim. <laughs> right. Yeah, that would not be fun. Um, yeah, terrible, terrible thought. Thank you. No. Um, yeah. So in terms of reducing the chance of getting a panic attack, um, how do you, is, is there a way to just reduce the chance of it happening overall? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I talked about reducing the triggers and there were those five triggers. Now the first is genetics. Well, you can't change your genes, but you can become more knowledgeable about anxiety and panic, which is what you're doing by listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. Go you. Uh, it's kind of like you have to be a more skilled driver if you have a very fast responsive car, right? And secondly, if there are chemicals that make anxiety more likely, alcohol, marijuana, caffeine, tobacco, whatever, reduce them, try and get them out of your life. You know, if you have a medical condition like a thyroid problem or uh, the, that causes anxiety, get that treated. But then we're getting to the big three, right? Stress, self-talk, how you talk to yourself, what you demand of yourself, and the unhelpful lessons your brain may have learned from the past. So if stress is a trigger for you, really practice, find ways to either reduce your stress or better manage it using some of the tools we talked about earlier. Help deal with stress and deal with the challenges of life by practicing supportive, realistic self-talk. Be mm. encouraging, not critical. Be supportive. Don't make impossible demands on yourself. And if you can see how in the past you sort of, if, if you can see how past events, past experiences, things you did or saw or heard are contributing to your panic now, your anxiety and worry now, try writing down those past experiences and sort of rethinking the lesson that your brain learned. For example, um, Jalal had been on an incredibly turbulent flight and he got off thinking, I could have died. I'm never going on a plane again. But he had to fly for business. And he just panicked on every flight. He would get drunk. He was taking pills. He just, he started to turn down, you know, business trips and come up with excuses. And part of what we did was I had him write out that whole experience. The plane starts to bump. It gets worse. People start to cry and pray and scream. I think I'm going to die. The plane's going down. The plane lands and I think, my God, I almost died. Whereas the lesson really could have been, 
that was a really turbulent flight. Pilots know how to fly through turbulence. The plane is designed to fly through turbulence. We landed safely. Mm. It's a very different lesson. So thinking about what you've learned in the past and whether or not it applies now, whether it's helpful and realistic now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So t- changing, changing or identifying the storyline that goes along with the thing that's that you're afraid of and then finding another storyline that's also that also could be true that's that's proven to be helpful for people exactly and and that's that can be particularly true if you had bad experiences it's true for anybody who had bad scary experiences that that have left them afraid um but if you had you know if you had experiences of of violence or trauma, molest or abuse, that may have left you with very unhelpful, uh, false lessons about yourself or about the world in general. Anxiety does its job when it lets you know that you truly are in a dangerous situation. You know, if you're in downtown San Francisco at three in the morning and you're drunk, and you're walking through the tenderloin, mm-hmm. anxiety should be sounding the alarm. Mm-hmm. The tenderloin is a, a little bit of a tricky neighborhood for those people who don't know San Francisco. Right. So. It's, a, it's a sketchy neighborhood. If you're in a sketchy neighborhood. Right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're in danger, right. anxiety should be doing its job. The trouble is anxiety can be so uh, automatic that it can it it can it can misfire it can send false alarms yeah it's like the difference between the smoke alarm is equally loud and blaring when there's a fire as when somebody just burned the toast that's such a so great when you're, metaphor oh. yeah I yeah when it. your fear alarm goes off you really need to find some way to figure out, is it a fire or is it just the toast? Right. Oh, that's so good. Thank you. I don't know. That really does it for me. Um, so interesting. And so, you know, I know that we um, we talked a little bit about what to do at the start of a panic attack. So I don't, I know I have this written, kind of written down here. I don't know if there's anything else to say around that question of what should one do when they have a panic attack? Are there other things that we didn't discuss yet? Well, I would say your job is to not feed the cycle of panic and anxiety. Mm. So, so accept that sometimes the panic response misfires. Use the breathing or relaxation or mindfulness to cope, but not to fight the panic. Question okay. your fears. Mm. Just because you're scared doesn't mean you're in danger. And when you're mm-hmm. calmer, look at your fears objectively, get the facts, write them down and review them over and over. So it's easier to remember even when you're scared. And when you panic, don't act out of fear. Act on the facts, what the facts say, not what the fears say. Because that's the only way your overly protective brain 
can actually learn that you're not in danger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so powerful. So sometimes um, if you already went to the doctor or provider, you know that this is panic. Um, This is not, there's not some other medical issue and you're experiencing some of these symptoms of panic, uh, it's really important to let yourself know that you're safe, that this is the fear response that's being, that's coming up. Um, Everything is okay, even though it doesn't feel okay. Is that what I'm hearing? It's just not, not to buy into it and to be able to recognize that this is happening and to have, um, try to talk yourself, kind of try to let yourself know it's not, this is not to be taken seriously. These cues are not to be taken seriously or or believed in this moment. Absolutely. It's a real dialogue. It's almost a fight sometimes, you Uh know, between the higher levels of your brain that are really developed and make us human, that are thoughtful and verbal and logical, and the lower, more primitive level of the brain that's really like, I thought there was danger, so we're sending out a lar- adrenaline, and you've got to get ready to run our fight, and I'm going to be screaming at you. Mm-hmm. you know? It's almost like an adult and a child. <laughs> um, and y- you want to be on the side of the adult. Y- you want to be- strengthen your thinking brain, not your reacting brain. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is such valuable information um, I can imagine that a lot of people just don't know what's going on. Um, it would make, sure. you know, we, we, we hear, you know, I think a lot just in the narrative, um, you know, like listen to your instincts, um, you know, do what feels right. Um, but this is one of those situations where um, there has to be kind of a talking yourself out of something that feels that feels like we should pay attention to. So it's, it really sounds like educating ourselves around this. And if we do suffer, if we're someone who suffers with panic, to really know that, to know what it is and know that it's not something that sh- we should be worried about is, um, yeah, it's almost like a secret. I I wish people would know <laughs> more. I so agree. Natalie, you are so right. Thank you. That was so validating. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm wondering, um, how do we support someone uh, who's having a panic attack? What do we do if someone we love or someone that we know is is in that panic mode? Well, I think the first thing is to understand that they they truly are afraid, that they truly think that they're in danger. Uh, so you can try saying things like, I know you're scared. I'm here. It sounds like you're having a panic attack, which is miserable and uncomfortable and scary, but it's actually not dangerous. It's, it's an adrenaline reaction and it is temporary. It's going to stop with time. If, you know, encourage them to breathe low and slow because when we're panicked we tend to <gasps> tend to breathe high and tight with the chest. Uh-huh. They can breathe with the belly and have a slow exhale that'll help them feel better sooner. Mhm. Ask them how they can help. And and 
And if they decide they need to leave this situation, you know, understand that they truly believe it's because this situation is dangerous. But sometimes because we hate to see the people that we care about feel anxious, we can encourage them. Well, if it scares you, don't do it. It's okay. We can leave. You actually don't want to encourage them to leave or avoid or, or, or do things that don't really make them safe because like we've talked about, even though it gives immediate relief, it strengthens the cycle of anxiety. So when they're calm, help them map out their anxiety cycle, you know, to figure mm -hmm. out, well, what's triggering it? What can I change? What's going on in my body that scares me? Where can I get the facts about that? Are there other fears I have? Where can I get the facts about that? Um, a lot of times people have found it really helpful when I'm working with them or when they're reading, when they're reading the, the book, um, to have a family member, to have a spouse read through the book with them and do the steps and do the exercises. And then I would say, praise them for every step they take, even if it seems small to you. Um, be gently honest about the negative impact of their anxious actions, but also be compassionate and supportive. Mm. So the, the negative impact that would be, um, that it would, it might be, um, harmful or, um, it might perpetuate the cycle if we leave that kind of thing or, or what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, yeah, exactly. You know, if I'm, if I'm afraid to take an elevator, if my spouse says, that's okay, we can walk the 40 flights, it's probably good aerobic exercise. <laughs> Then part of my brain that's reacting says, oh, look at that. They didn't go in the elevator. I knew there was something about that elevator. I'm going to remember this, right? Mm. So the fear of the elevator remains, maybe even gets stronger. Their belief that they'd be able to be safe on the elevator and that they'd be able to cope and tolerate with the panic gets weaker. And that's not the direction you want to be moving in. Got it. So we can help our um, loved ones or people that we know or close people um, to not validate the fear. If they're uh, if those, if, if it truly is a fear and it's not a danger, we can gently um, suggest um you know, that the, the elevator is a, is a safe elevator. You know, I've taken it today already three times. We could go on it together if you'd like or some, something kind of gentle to kind of suggest maybe to not automatically take the person who's panicking um, their lead, perhaps. Exactly, exactly. And, and maybe, as you say, maybe offer to go with them into a situation that's scary, maybe do it in small steps. I'm a great believer in gradually facing your fears, not, you know, yelling at yourself and, and, and telling yourself you have to go do the, the thing that scares you the most. Um, 
And and I think about listening to what your your fear brain, your reacting brain is saying to you. Be be curious about it. Listen to it with respect. And this is true if you're talking about a loved one. Listen with respect and curiosity about what actually they are afraid of. But then help them probably before and after the panic attack. It's hard to do during, but Mm -hmm. help them then kind of think through, is that really true? I kind of think of that as being respectfully curious, but not credulous, right? We're back to the just because something scares you doesn't mean it's dangerous. Uh, Right. That's so sneaky. I think that's maybe one of the things that's really sneaky about anxiety, um, especially like what I see uh, in working with people around anxiety is um, people ask me, they say, you know, aren't I supposed to listen to my gut instincts? Um, Am I supposed to not listen to myself? And so to talk to someone about that is really, it's an interesting conversation because of course we don't want people to be totally disconnected from themselves and to not listen to themselves. But if we'd know that um, something is a, a fear that is unnecessary or is hurting them in other ways or preventing them from living a full life, then maybe it's best we don't listen to everything that our instincts tell us. So that's such a, I don't know, I think that's such an interesting topic. You know, that's, that's such a good point. And we're talking, I think, about using all of our brain, not just one part. If we can, because we, we can sometimes talk ourselves into doing something that sort of instinctively on our gut level, we know isn't right for us. Well, that would be like, using just your thinking brain and not listening to your more primitive emotional reacting brain. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't work well. But then panic is the opposite problem. And that's the reacting, the part of the brain that just reacts. And if you just listen to that, then you'd never do anything that was scary and you'd never learn that you could do it. And your life can become more and more restricted. So it's having that dialogue. Gee, this job sounds really good on paper, but I just got a bad feeling with everybody I met, like they were not happy and like this just doesn't feel right to me. Listen to that, right? Or at least explore it. But similarly, oh, I'm terrified. Okay, I understand. Tell me what you're afraid of. Now, let's look at this first before we run screaming out of the house and calling 911 and the fire department. Because, you know, again, is it a fire or is it the toast? Right. Yeah. Both parts of your brain involved. Right. Yeah, so I'm I'm hearing that it's okay to listen to different parts of ourselves, um, our instincts, our our um, immediate responses. We can use our minds. We can use many different aspects of us to try to problem solve around different things, and that would be important to do um, to to live a more full life. And not to be overly driven maybe by the brain or by our gut, just to kind of, or by fears, 
or is it just to kind of collaborate with ourselves around what and with others maybe about what's safe and what isn't? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Great. Great. Well, this has been so helpful. Um, I, I'd love to hear maybe kind of to shift gears a little bit to hear about your books and about your work. Um, and in addition to your self-help workbook, Overcoming Anxiety and Panic Interactive Guide, you've written a therapist manual, virtual reality, which is called Virtual Reality Therapy for Anxiety, a guide for therapists. Um, that sounds so intriguing. Um, I'd love to hear how you combine virtual reality to help with anxiety. You know, virtual reality, VR is a fabulous tool because when you put on the VR headset, you're in another world. I mean, everywhere you look, the virtual world, the virtual environment is what you see. You hear the sounds as if they're real. And so it feels real. Mm. So the beauty of this is you can safely gradually face something that you're afraid of and the therapist controls the virtual experience. So for example, you know, Dave was afraid of flying and came to see me for that fear. So we got the facts about his fears, right? Hmm. And then once he's like, okay, I know this isn't really dangerous, but it still feels scary, the idea of being on a plane and taking off and there being turbulence. I said, of course, right? You, you convince your thinking brain, but that's not going to convince your gut, your reacting emotional brain. That needs to learn from experience. So we started by putting him in the VR headset and he was in a cab on the way to the airport, which is when he would start to get nervous. And we practiced talking back to his fears and his anxiety level went down. And when that no longer scared him, I had him waiting in the gate and then boarding the jetway and then flying. And with VR, you can do things you can't do in real life. Hmm. So we just practiced every part of the flight he needed as often as he needed. We would taxi and just taxi and just taxi until he was less scared. And then we could just do takeoffs over and over and over again. I mean, in real life, if you're scared of flying and you're starting to fly again, you can't say to the pilot, the pilot, oh, I was really scared. I'm sorry. My anxiety level was like an eight on that takeoff. Can we land and, and do that again a couple of times? <laughs> but with virtual reality, that's exactly what we can do. And I can control the weather, the time of day, the degree of turbulence, where you sit on the plane. You know, that is so cool. How, so, so this has been so, someone or a bunch of people. Did you collaborate to create this or who, how did the, who created this? Um, it's almost hard. I'd love to try it. Sounds so oh, helpful. Th there are, there are three main companies that create virtual reality software specifically designed for use by therapists in psychotherapy. And I'll tell you their names in alphabetical order. Okay. One is Amelia Virtual Care, 
Amelia, like Amelia Earhart, Amelia Virtual Care. Mm -hmm. They're based in, in Spain. The second company going alphabetically is C, the letter C, two, the number two, care. And if you uh, Google it, it's C, two, and then dot care, the word care. Mm -hmm. They're based in France. And the third company is the oldest of the three and is based in the United States. And they are virtually better. Cool. And they each have slightly different virtual environments or may need different equipment or have different um, pros and cons. So it really depends on your practice, what you treat, um, and you find the system that is most helpful for you and your clients. Wonderful. Wow. Okay. I definitely would love to try that. So need to look into that as well because I'm a little bit fearful of flying as well, even though um, I still do it. It's so hard to overcome fears. My goodness. So Well, it is. And it's so unfair if you're doing something that scares you, right? You're doing you're doing exposure, right? Which is what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. You're facing your fears and then like, wait a minute, I'm facing my fears and I'm not feeling better. This is so not fair, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because what exactly. happens sometimes is you're white knuckling through. It's like, oh my God, it could go down at any time. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I have to do it. I have to do it. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Oh, I can't wait till I get off. As opposed to, okay, all right. This feels really unpleasant, but this is my part of my brain that's scared. This is its chance to learn that maybe there's nothing to be dangerous about. So not to be scared about. So what am I fearing? What are the actual facts? Let me kind of do the breathing so it's not quite so uncomfortable. And then what would the facts tell me I should do? I don't want to do anything that's based on fear. So, you know, don't sit only on the safe seat of the plane. You know, don't avoid looking out. Don't tense all up and grip the you know, the armrest to keep the plane, uh, you know, uh, uh, up in the air, uh, really look at what am I doing that's based on fear? Mm -hmm. Let me stop doing that. Let me look at what my fears are and what are the actual facts. If it's truly dangerous, I should listen to my fear. Right. If it's not truly dangerous, I should listen to my facts. Mm. Beautiful. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to think about those things next week when I go on a flight. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I don't know, Dr. Elizabeth, if, if there is anything else that you would like to speak to or to share with people about virtual reality, about anxiety, about panic attacks, if there's any place for us, final pieces of wisdom for us to take home. If you have anxiety or panic or phobias and fears, don't just suffer. Mm. There can be really effective treatment. 
So I want to send a message of hope. Because the more knowledge you have, the more successful you're going to be. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is a wonderful message. And I was wondering, Dr. Elizabeth, um, where can people find you, follow you, uh, get your books, get your get other things that you're um, do great things that you're doing out there? The book is available on Amazon and uh, basically any of the common bookseller websites. Um, there's even a website overcoming.com. Okay. For the book. Uh, so it's Overcoming Anxiety and Panic Interactive Guide because it steps you through things for you to do. It's like you're you're interacting with the book. Um, and to learn more about me, you can go to my website, www.elizabeth-mcmahon.com or you can uh, hook up with me on LinkedIn or look at my Twitter page. It's at D-R-E-L-I-Z-M-C-M. -M. Okay. Fabulous. Thank you so much. This has been really, really informative. And I feel like I've learned so much every time I speak with you. I'm just, yeah, just taking notes and... I uh, just feel um, like I know more. So thank you so much for the great work that you're doing. And um, yeah, just excited for all the, all the things, all the people that you're helping and all the great things you're doing that are really cutting edge. Natalie, thank you so much for having this podcast on such a current and important topic. I, you're doing a real, a real service for people. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. You too. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. To find out more about Dr. Elizabeth, you can go to her website at www.elizabeth-mcmahon.com or follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at Dr. Eliz McMahon and the details and spelling of all of that are in the show notes. And if you think this episode might be helpful to someone you know, feel free to share. And to stay connected, feel free to follow us on Instagram at Relationship Podcast. This is Natalie Bloom wishing you a warm and cozy fall season and hope you're having a great day. I hope you had a great time listening. Again, just a friendly reminder that the podcast is for informational purposes only. Relationship University is not intended to be a substitute for psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, or diagnosis and treatment, or actual psychotherapy with a therapist or psychologist. If you're desiring or needing mental health support, please seek the advice of your medical provider or other qualified mental health professionals. If you think this may be a mental health emergency, please call your doctor or 911 immediately or go to your local emergency room. Life can be challenging sometimes and everyone goes through tough things. And I hope you're seeking professional support from your own personal therapist if that's something that you think would be beneficial to your life. I appreciate your time to listen to this and take care. Thank you.